I want to encourage you this morning to take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What do we call that chapter? The love chapter. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to be studying this particular chapter. We're going to do it by using the rest of Scripture to illustrate what it's teaching, but we're going to focus on this passage of Scripture. And the title of this series is It's All About Love, His Love. It's all about His love. And as we look at this church in Corinth, we're going to see, particularly in these verses today, the very difference that love makes that if you fail in everything else in life, but you love well, you'll be blessed as you enter the presence of our Father. It's all about His love. And as we look at 1 Corinthians 13, I really want you to think about for a moment the, the background, the context where He's speaking these words. The church at Corinth had some problems. And maybe you're aware of that. Maybe you've read through 1 Corinthians before, but almost immediately you discover that this is a church that's divided around personalities of various teachers and pastors that they've been exposed to. And what people were doing in the church was they were attaching themselves to a particular personality. And then if you weren't attached to their personality, the person that they thought was particularly important as a teacher, then they shunned you, and they divided one another over those personalities. We would call them personality cults, but it functioned more like a personality clique. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. And the spiritual one said, I am of Jesus. But they were divided. They were carnal, Paul said meaning they were spiritually immature, acting like mere men, he says. And, and what he means by that is that they were acting as people who didn't have the Spirit. People of the Spirit acting as if they didn't have the Spirit. They were guilty in that particular church of tolerating sexual immorality, lawsuits between Christians. Christians that when they had the Lord's Supper, which was like a small meal, a dinner, people were drinking so much of the grape juice, they were getting drunk. They weren't waiting for other people. If people got the service late, there was nothing left for them. And by the time you come to chapter 12, you discovered that these Christians in Corinth are actually ranking one another based on their spiritual giftedness. Something was seriously missing in the church in Corinth. When we come to chapter 13, we begin to see what was missing in the lives of these first century Christians. 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 1, Paul writes, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains 
but have not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Chapter 13 is part of a unit. If you study the scripture, it breaks down into sections. You know, the original text didn't have chapters or verses, numbers assigned to them. That was done later as people put together the the editions of the Bible that you and I use. But in the beginning, they didn't have that. And so this chapter 13 is really part of a section, a whole unit that starts in chapter 12, includes chapter 13, and goes to chapter 14. In chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts, and what he's doing is describing ministry, the the idea of ministry, how it's supposed to work, that God infuses you with a giftedness, an enablement, and that you are to use that giftedness. And everyone has that who knows Christ. And so he starts with the idea of ministry. And then in chapter 14, he gives us an example of the practice of ministry. And specifically, he's describing the exercise of spiritual gifts when a group of Christians would assemble together. And we exercise our gifts outside the walls of the church, but but what happens inside the walls is really a training ground for what happens outside the walls. And so you have the idea of ministry in chapter 12, you have the practice of ministry in chapter 14, and this chapter about love and in chapter 13 is really a bridge between the two. And what he's showing us, what he's saying to the people in Corinth, is that you move from the idea of ministry to the practice of ministry through love. And what we discover is there is no such thing as ministry, authentic ministry, without it. In the first three verses of chapter 13, what Paul is saying to you and me, if we heard it with the ears of the people in Corinth, are absolutely stunning. He says several things. He's saying, my life is not measured by the words I speak. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. And of course, that, that is, um, he's exaggerating for effect. He's making a point. I can speak as I preach. I can speak as I teach, I can speak as I share with other people, and he says in the highest form, the highest enablement that the Holy Spirit gives is when I speak in this thing called tongues, which is another Bible study. But the point is, he says, even at this moment when you're speaking with this highest form of enablement, whatever you want to call it, even at this point, that's not the full expression of love. That's not love yet. My life is not measured by the truth I teach. He says, although I have this thing called prophecy and I understand all mysteries and I, and I have all knowledge. And again, you know, we think that if I know something, if I'm a genius, if I have a lot of information crammed into my head, that, that I can teach and I can know and I can have all of this information. I can be a Bible scholar. But I've not yet begun ministry just by that alone. You know, sometimes we mark churches by those things, by the expressions of the Spirit, by 
the way that things are taught. My life is also not measured by the faith I possess. And he says, though I have all faith, so I can move mountains. You know, Jesus even talked about that. He talked about if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could speak to the mountain and it would move. He says, even in that moment where you are taking God at his word and you're putting your trust in his word, even at that moment, you have not yet begun ministry. My life is not measured by the service I perform. He says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. This is not something in reaction to a letter you got in the mail from the church or for some ministry where they tell you about some situation and you decide to write a check and you send it in. This is something else. This is where the Spirit so grips the heart of somebody that they give everything, everything, all my goods. But they've not yet begun ministry. My life also is not measured by the sacrifice I make. And though I give my body to be burned. You know, even Jesus said that no greater love does a man have than this, that he gives his life. That he gives his life. But you know, Jesus gave his life, and that was an instance of love. But not every person that gives their life is expressing love. Believe it or not, people die and give their lives for a lot of reasons. They give their life for to make a statement. Sometimes they do it as an act of violence. Sometimes they do it out of devotion to their country. They do it for, even as a martyr, to make a statement about what I believe. But it's possible to do that and not yet love. All these activities are good things. None of them are condemned. None of these things are bad things. These are all things. The Holy Spirit may work in you to accomplish and to do. None are said to be bad, but Jesus is, is not saying that, that words, truth, faith, service, sacrifice, that they don't mean anything. He's saying that they don't mean anything apart from love. That love is the essential quality element that has to be central to your life and to mine. I want you to notice a couple things about this passage, and then we're going to look at something else. First, I want you to notice that each of these three verses, one, two, and three, ends the same way it ends with first this statement but have not love if you do you're doing this thing you have this thing you're acting in a certain way but have not love they all say that the second thing is that he states some kind of consequence when you act without love some kind of consequence and each one of these consequences affects you personally the first one, he says, but have not love, I become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. So even with my, my best sermon, my best message, or when the Spirit fills you and you speak with the tongues of angels, I don't know what language we're going to speak in heaven, but it must be that. And so whatever that case may be, even if I do that, but have not love, I'm just making noise. In the second and third instances that he describes, he says, I am nothing. It's not talking about my activity is nothing. It, it probably helps someone when you teach, even if you don't love them. It probably helps someone when you give all your goods and bestow them on the poor. But what does it do for you? He says, I am nothing. The third one is, it profits me nothing. And so the service and the sacrifice doesn't do anything for you in eternity without love. 
That's the one thing I want you to see. There's a second thing. I want you to notice that in the rest of this chapter, starting at verse 4, which, which is where we'll be next week, he says, um, and I am in 2 Corinthians. He says in verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Notice how it shifts there. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. You notice he's talking about love not as an idea, but as if it were a person. You see that? Love is this. Love is not that. Love does this. Love doesn't do that. Who's he talking about? You see, this is a perfect description of the character and the life of Jesus Christ himself. This is who he is. And he's telling you something very, very important that you don't want to miss. Only one person has ever loved the way that God wants you to love. And that's Jesus. And you know what? You and I can't love without Jesus. Not the way God wants me to. And unless he inhabits me, unless he works in me, unless he lives in me, I can never do what we're going to be talking about the next seven weeks. You can't take this chapter and say, love does this. Okay, I'm signing up. I'm going to do that today. It doesn't work like that. So it brings me to this statement. My life is measured by whether his love is filling and flowing from my heart. It has to be his love in me. And the moment you trust Christ, he comes to live in you. But then you spend the rest of your life learning to walk with him. For his activity to become a reality in you and through you. That is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's this new birth, this new life with Christ. It's not a bunch of rules. It's him living his life through you. And if you are saying, I'm a Christian, I come to church, I've been baptized, I go to Bible study, I participate in the life of this particular church. And then during the week I work my job and I try to be a good husband, I try to be a good wife, I try to be a good person, I try to do all the things that I think are pleasing to God. But listen, if you are the one making your decisions in your life, if you are the one calling the shots in your life, you have not yet become what he wants you to be. He wants you to be a person who follows him. It was not an option. It was not a stage of development. It was the beginning of what it means to follow Christ, was to yield your life to him and say, yes, I'm with you. Whatever you want from me, you've got it. I can't give what I don't possess. And if Christ doesn't live in me, I cannot love like this that we're going to talk about today. So this morning, the question I want us to to take it and give our attention to is this. Am I living out of the depths of his love? And each week, I want us to find a passage of Scripture, a narrative, a story that illustrates what we're trying to learn in 1 Corinthians 13. And today, we're going to find that in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And we'll spend the rest of our time there. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Am I living out of the depths of his love? Well, here's some ways that I can know. First, his love is a demand he makes. His love is a demand he makes. And in this passage of Scripture, this is the best introduction 
to the subject of love that Jesus gives. And it's the clearest instruction that that he gave on what love is. And it's found in Luke 10, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, which we're going to look at. But at the end of the story, in verse 36, he says, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the essential evidence of salvation. The man comes to him and says, What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, What does the law say? Love God, love your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. And it's a command, meaning it's not an option. It means that my response, my posture, my attitude, my focus on you is commanded already. It's a demand that I love you. I don't have a choice. That's why Jesus can command you and me to love our enemies. It's not about whether I feel like it. It's about obedience. If I walk out of the auditorium, I go down the hallway, there's a little child crying in the hallway. And I go up to that child and I said, I command you to be happy. How do you think that's going to work? Well, it's not. You say, Pastor, you can't command a kid to feel a certain way. That's right. And God doesn't command you and I to feel a certain way. But he does command us to love. And so it becomes not a feeling. It becomes an act of obedience. Now, when I obey, it can create great feeling. It can produce great feeling. It can cause great feeling. But when I act, it's in response to a demand that he makes. His love is not dependent on how you feel. His love is not dependent on how you feel. That is so counter to everything that you see or hear in media, most everything you hear and see from people around you. Love is not about how you feel. It is a demand that he makes. And I can obey or I can choose not to obey. His love is demand. Secondly, his love is a debt that I owe. Not only is it a command that he gives, it has very little to do with feeling, but it's a debt that I owe. Look at verse 29, what comes next. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, 
And who is my neighbor? You see where he went with that? Who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. The lawyer's logic works something like this. God says, the command is, love God, love your neighbor. And immediately his logic goes to who is my neighbor. He wants to define who is my neighbor. He made a mistake in his logic. He asked who is my neighbor, but he never asked what is love. He never asked what love is. He already thought he knew what love was. He thought he already had that part figured out. But Jesus, in the story that he tells, he defines love. And in that sense, he really doesn't answer the lawyer's question. He goes back to the the part, you want to talk about the neighbor, let's talk about what love is. And so Jesus' response is this, a neighbor is anyone in need, and everyone's in need. Who's my neighbor? Whoever's in need, and everyone is in need. Paul speaks of this moment when we meet someone in need, and he calls it a debt. In Romans chapter 13, verse 8, he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. It's a debt. It's something that you owe. And when he says, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law, literally, it just means the other. Anybody who's not yourself. And so who is a neighbor? Is anyone in need? And everyone has a need. So Jesus and Paul are saying that the moment that you and I encounter human need, I just met my neighbor. Every time I encounter human need, I just met my neighbor. And my, my choice, my action at that point is already dictated for me because it's a demand he makes. I don't have an option. And suddenly I begin to see that this love thing is pretty serious. His love is a demand on my life. It's a debt I owe. And I, if I had more time to camp on that, I would point out that that when you and I properly understood, understand what Jesus has done for us, when we understand what he has poured out to rescue us, when we understand that his intent is to love the entire world and to demonstrate that love, to help people be reconciled by seeing his love, experiencing his love through you and me as his hands and feet, then I begin to realize I've got a debt that's never going to get paid off. His love is a demand on my life. It's a debt I owe. But thirdly, his love is a decision that I choose. His love is a decision I choose. In chapter 10, verse 31, watch what happens next. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This was the part of the story that when I was praying about, Lord, what illustrates these first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13? 
this was it right here. You've got two reactions going on. You've got this priest, you've got this Levite, and, um, and look at those guys. Think about those guys for a moment. They have made the mistake of thinking that the measure of how well you are doing ministry, how well you are doing life, they have made the mistake of thinking that it has to do with how well you speak or how well you teach or how well you express faith or how well you serve or how well you sacrifice. And I don't know what these guys were about in their daily life. But obviously, being a priest or a Levite, they had a sense that they were engaged in the service of God in some way. But here they come along and they encounter someone with need. Remember, everyone has need, but Jesus paints it large right here. They encounter someone with need and they just keep going. In contrast to that, the Samaritan comes. And he understands that the moment he sees a human in need, he has just discovered his neighbor. The man had never done anything for the Samaritan. The man was unconscious. The man was never going to do anything for the Samaritan. There was nothing in the Samaritan that was coming from this guy on the ground where he could say, well, if I do this for him, he'll do this for me. There's none of that. It's a totally different kind of reaction. The other guys, they may have loved their families. The other guys may have worked really hard at their jobs. The other guys may have never missed a Saturday at Sabbath. (laughs) The other guys were always in their places, always on time, always doing what they believed to be the right thing. The Samaritan had a totally different value system. Now, I need to bring up at this point that should be obvious by now, but the love that we're talking about at this moment is not the kind of love that we have saturated our society with. There are three different words used in the Greek language that are translated by the English word love. You know, the King James translators translated love here differently. You remember what word they used? Anybody? 1 Corinthians 13, charity, charity. They knew, they used the word love elsewhere, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. They used it elsewhere, but they came here and they knew this was so special, this was so different, this was so remarkable that even though it was the same Greek word, they used a different English word, charity, to describe it. You see, in the Greek language, there's a word that describes love the way most of us use love. It's the word phileo. And phileo describes feeling. And when I love someone like that, it's because they possess something that I find attractive, because they do something for me, because I care for them, there's some relationship there. And I have this natural feeling of goodwill, this natural affection for them. This is the essence, by the way, of romantic love. When I look across the room and that moment of chemistry takes place and we say that we fall in love and suddenly there's this web of emotion and feeling taking place and we have great novels and books and movies and pictures that try to capture 
this, this phileo. And we have put that on a pedestal, and we have said that's the greatest kind of love that you can have. And that, that's what you're seeking when you get married, and that's what you're seeking in relationships is phileo. But you know, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible has another word for love. It's called the word eros. And um, phileo, we hear it in words like Philadelphia. We've talked about this before, but Philadelphia is based on two Greek words, phileo and adelphos. Adelphos means brother, and phileo means the love, and so we call it city of brotherly love, natural affection. But eros, we get an English word from that, erotic, and it refers to sensual, physical love. And, um, and so there are words that it shows up in the New Testament, usually not always in a great sense, in a great way. But the word that's used here in 1 Corinthians 13 that describes the love of God, that describes the kind of love that should be the foundation of all ministry and that is going to be the measure of our lives is agape if it's a noun or agape, agapao if it's a, if it's a verb. And this is a kind of love that God demonstrated for us when he sent Christ for us. It's a kind of love that, that is not dependent on the other person for it to function. Agape acts without regard to who the other person is or what they've done or what they can offer me, whether I like them, whether I don't like them, whether I have feelings for them, whether I don't have feelings for them, whether, whether I agree with them or I don't agree with them, doesn't matter. Agape doesn't depend at all on that other person. Agape has much more to do with who you are than who they are. Agape is a stance that is unconditional in what it offers to others. It's a stance that offers everything for another's good. And it is a choice. It is a choice. This is how God loves us, because he chooses to. And if you're having trouble loving someone today, would you think for a moment about the kind of love that you're talking about? Because I can't tell you how many times I've sat with individuals, and they would say, I don't love that person anymore. You know what they're saying to me, don't you? You know that already. They're saying, I don't what? Phileo, I don't have feelings for that person. I don't have affection for that person anymore. And I say, well, that's fine. But when it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, guess what word he uses there? It's not phileo. It's agape. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Poured his life out for her. And so the kind of love that we are called to is the kind of love that God has for us. And when you look at someone, you say, well, I don't feel anything for them anymore. Well, you, you're just now beginning to learn what love is. Love is a choice. Love is always a choice, the kind of love he calls you and me to. And so when I'm dealing with someone who's particularly difficult, who, who is hurtful to me or who has hurt me, it's not based on my feelings, the way I respond to them. I can't do it based on conditions where I'll love them if they do something differently. It is a choice. It is a choice. You know, the lovely thing about that is it's, it is a choice. But when 
I deal with a married couple, or I deal with broken relationships between friends or, or uh, estrangement between a parent and child, whatever the case may be, and they say, well, I just really find it difficult to trust that person. I say, you don't have to trust them. They say, well, I just don't feel anything for that person. I say, well, you don't have to feel anything for that person. You say, well, I think I can do it if they would do something else first. You say, well, they don't have to do anything first. You see, the kind of love that he is calling you and me to at that moment is to act without regard to who they are. It doesn't say anything about them when I love them. It says something about me. And it's a choice to do what's best for that other person without regard to myself. How can you know when his love is flowing out of your life? It's a demand. And what you're doing at that moment is obeying in such a way as you're pleasing him. You're wanting to please the Father, and you know that he wants you to love this way. It's a debt that when I see a need, I've met my neighbor. It's a decision. It's not a feeling, but it's a choice. And then finally, number four, his love is a demonstration that I make. It's a demonstration that I make. Look at how he responds in verse 34. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. Every day, every day, every day, There are people that God surrounds you with who are in the ditch. They can't give you a dime. They can't help you. They can't give you what you want. But you have the opportunity to demonstrate the love of God. This love acts. It demonstrates. It moves. It does something. And so it may speak, and it may have knowledge, and it may give all its goods, and it may give its body to be burned, but it comes from that heartbeat that is in sync with the heart of God. This love demonstrates the reality that Jesus Christ, in fact, is living in you. It is the greatest evidence of the presence of God in your life when you're able to demonstrate His love like that. I brought with me this morning a pair of earbuds. By the way, these are purple and gold, and yes, they are. LSU earbuds. That has nothing to do with the illustration. Uh, They've been in my pocket. Anyway, all right, earbuds, properly used. Properly used. What are they supposed to do? Anybody? They're supposed to convey what? Sound to me. And, and these earbuds right now aren't plugged in anything. But properly used, when they're plugged in, they convey sound into the earbud and it goes to me. You see? Now, when it's not plugged in, it doesn't do that. Now, it has a ministry... It can function in a certain way. It can, it can communicate things to me. It can do those things for me. But it really is not accomplishing anything unless it's plugged in. And you know, the love of God and ministry work the same way. You have spiritual gifts. You have ability. You can exercise them. You have talents. You have 
natural training maybe that you've received from your family. You have all kinds of great qualities in, in addition to your bad qualities. You have all these kinds of things. None of that helps you one whit if you are not plugged into the love of God. You cannot do what he's going to be describing in chapter 13, which is who Jesus is. You cannot do it without Jesus. You desperately need him in your life, in your heart. And you say, well, how can I get him? How can I get him into my life? How can I know the love of God? How can I get his love? Well, the truth is you already have it. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. He didn't just tell you. He demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When did he die? When you had it all together? Did he die for you when you were a good person? When he died for you? Did he die for you because you did everything right? When did he die for you? So he died for you when you were what? A sinner. While we were yet sinners, before you did anything right, before you ever understood who he was, before you ever said yes to him. You see, the whole story of, of Scripture is that you have Adam and Eve, you have men in the garden made in the image of God, meaning I can't be what God made me to be apart from him. He made me in his image to reflect him, to honor him, to bring him glory. And that's what he made me for. And that's when life has meaning. And that's when life has substance. The Bible says that in the garden, the man blew that off. That Adam and Eve sinned. The, The serpent came and tempted them. Led them to believe that they didn't need God to live. That they could live life independently of him. That it didn't happen to listen to him. And so they sin. Sometimes we think sin is a list of things that you do. It's, it's when you do bad things. It's when you hurt people. It's when you lie. It's when you, when you murder people. It's when you steal. It's when you do all those things. Those are symptoms of sin. The great sin is living without God, living independently of Him, calling your own shots, doing what you want to do, saying, I don't have to do what God tells me to do. I don't have to love the people He wants me to love. I don't have to do it. You wonder why there's so many problems in the world, why there's war and hatred and serial killing and and people who hate one another, why we live in a country that's so deeply divided and so uncharitable in the way that we speak of other people, in the way we debate issues, the way we discuss problems. We live in that kind of world. We wonder why. It's because people are living without God. And when you and I come to a place that we realize, I can't live without him. I can't be a man without God. I can't be a woman that he made me to be without God. Then we begin to turn. And that turning is repentance and it's saying, I can't do it without him. All the bad stuff I do, I realize now, is just a symptom of a, of a greater problem inside of me. Of independence. I need to come to a place in my life where I'm putting my trust in him. I am depending on him to save me. And then I can become the man that he made me to be. The woman that he made you to be, whatever the case may be. He, he, you have now the capacity when you depend on him. And you know, that doesn't begin just at salvation when you trust Jesus. 
you walk an aisle, you shake a preacher's hand, you let everybody know that you're trusting Jesus and you're going to go to heaven because you trusted Jesus. No, 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 no. This way of life is supposed to be all the time, every day, every moment. I'm depending on him. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And So how can I love like this? The truth is I can't, but he can. Jesus can. Jesus can. Can you imagine a world in America where people are depending on God to love others through them? Can you imagine just a church, just a church where the members are depending on God to love others through them? Who is it that God wants you to love? Who is it that you're struggling to love? Where is your fight? Where is your battle? And I suggest to you this morning, it's not with that person. It's in here with you. Here's your problem. I think it was Dwight Moody in the 19th century. He said the, that no man ever gave me a greater problem than I did to myself. This morning, I want to invite you, if you never have, to come to a place where you're ready to surrender your independence, and you're ready to put your trust entirely in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He will forgive your sins, all those individual things you've done when you were acting independently of God. He will forgive you. He died on the cross for you. He died to pay for those sins, not because you deserve it, but because he is a gracious God who's a God of mercy, and he chose to do it for you. And this morning, if you want to put your trust in him, he will rescue you. When that trust is genuine, he will come live inside you. Are you ready to put your trust in him? Believer, are you calling all the shots in your life? If you are, you're no different than these people in Corinth. And you're in as much trouble and as difficulty as they are. You can't live independently of him, even as a believer. He's called you to depend on him. And especially if you're having trouble loving someone today, would you start here? They're not going to change this for you, but you can. You can change this. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the way you speak to us through your word. Thank you for this awesome teaching. But more importantly, thank you that you are willing to come and dwell and inhabit a human heart and to love the world through that heart. And we want to be a people like that. I pray for that man or woman or young person this morning who's ready to trust Jesus. And they're hesitant maybe. They're a little embarrassed or a little afraid. And I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would embolden them and give them the courage to step out and to publicly say, I'm putting my trust in Jesus. And Father, for those brothers and sisters who are wrestling, maybe at home or in their workplace or even in their neighborhoods, they're having difficulty loving, we pray today, Father, that you would enable them to experience a breakthrough by reaching out for your love and letting your love flow through them. Father, guide us in these moments. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come. 
Holy Spirit, come and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.